Welcome to the podcast of Grace and Peace Church. These are the teachings from our Sunday gatherings. We are supported by listeners like you who find value in the mission of discipleship. If you'd like to give financially, check out our website, our Instagram, or our Facebook for the giving tab. And thank you for partnering with us and keeping the mission alive. Grace and peace to you. Do we have any chefs in the house? Anybody like to cook? Yeah, he does. I know he does. Um, I recently, I love to cook, and I love making pizza. That's one of my things. Um, built a pizza oven in my backyard a long time ago. Um, it was kind of one of the my dreams. Was I love making bread. I love making pizza. Um, I really love all food, any food. It, it can be top ramen, and I'm still like, oh, this is delicious. Uh, cup of noodles, um, all the way up to really good fine foods. Um, oh, sorry about that. I left that little... Yeah, <laughs> I left a little uh, booby trap for you, a little landmine. Um, but uh, love cooking, and uh, this week, this is going to tie in. My title for this message is Bigger, Better, Faster, Newer, okay? Because it's New Year's. Last week, I talked a little bit about like kind of New Year's resolutions and what that looks like. Um, but I want to take that a little bit further because uh, we preach out of the lectionary, and the passage this week ties in beautifully with starting a new year. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, so cooking, um, you all know that certain ingredients are required for certain things to work well, right? And some ingredients that if you have the wrong amount, it doesn't work well, right? Like too much of one thing doesn't work. And when, when I make pizza, like sometimes when I'm in a hurry, we go to Trader Joe's and get the pre-made pizza dough. But when I have time, what I love to do is make the dough, because the dough, like homemade quality, where it has time, like 24 hours to rise, get that fermentation going. The flavor is so much better. The like fluffy crumb that you get inside it is just so much better. Um, and so I'm always trying to refine that. It's been like a, a lifelong journey of like making good dough. And, um, and so I tried a new dough this last week, and it called for more salt than usual. And I was skeptical, as some of you already were like, really? More salt? You know, you guys know what happens when there's too much salt, what happens there um, to the flavor. And I was like, maybe this is just some genius thing that I don't know about, but I tasted the dough before I even cooked. And I was like, this is kind of salty. Like, I don't know if this is going to work. And we had friends over. So I even bought extra dough to like, just to make sure if it didn't work out, you know? Um, it ended up working out okay. But I should have followed my instinct and said, no, that doesn't work. Like, this ingredient can't be at this level. And it called for nearly double what I normally do. And I was like, this can't be working, you know? But I was like, the place that I got it from was reputable. It was like this really well-known pizza place. And I was like, wow, maybe they're just, I don't know, maybe their measurements are off or something. Or maybe I did something wrong. I don't know. Um, but emphasizing the wrong thing, the wrong ingredient, just throws the whole thing off. And, and I share that because I think it's a, it's a good picture for our lives as we start the new year. Um, I don't know if I should do a show of hands, but like how many of you guys are like did resolutions? Anybody? Okay, so like two of us, three of us, four of us. Okay. Um, some of you guys want to do resolutions. I know like culturally, like it's a thing, right? Like everybody's like, we've got to do stuff. And um, I'm sure tons of people got gym memberships, right? And like, yeah, Weight Watchers, yeah, it's like it goes through the roof, and then like a week later, you end your, no, no, your gym membership. I don't know. Um, no, I'm sure like ice baths were like the big thing, right? Like that was like the, probably the 
biggest sale. Like people are like, oh, I don't need a gym membership. I'll get an ice bath and a sauna. I guess if you're next level, that's like the next level cool thing to do, apparently. I don't know. Um, but um, the new year, the new me, new vibes kind of thing, it's like that's what we're in the middle of. And I want to talk to that in a way that isn't just like, yeah, go charge, like find the thing and pursue it and become all you and the best you can be in 2024, you know? Um, but I want to talk about like what are the key ingredients, the ingredients that we need in life, the thing that we need to emphasize, to make sure we don't overly emphasize the wrong things so that it ends up, life ends up tasting bad, essentially. Um, overemphasizing the wrong thing in life can lead us to, to some failure, right? Um, some of us have maybe been there, like I talked about a little bit last week, of like overemphasizing, I don't know, maybe money or certain things in our lives that we just, we think we have to have it and we think it's going to totally transform life and we'll be happy and content when this happens. Um, Sometimes it can leave us a bit, I guess, imbalanced when it comes to really the things that we need. And so we have to recognize what are the things that we truly need to begin to bring all this into a way that brings life to us. And so I want to read this chapter in Mark, or this, this passage in Mark. It's in chapter one. It'll be on the screen, and it's in your notes. And uh, this comes from the lectionary. We preach the lectionary because it gives you an opportunity to just read through all of Scripture and kind of get... Um, a good idea of all of scripture without it being just straight topical. So we're not just like picking and choosing whatever we want to talk about here. Um, we want to talk about what God wants to talk about. Um, but uh, Mark chapter one, verse four, it starts out. Um, this is uh, about John the Baptist. And so um, let me pray and then we'll read this passage. Lord, I pray that these words uh, aren't just... Um, words that have been written down 2,000 years ago, but these are words that um, bring life, that they renew us and uh, transform us. And so uh, help us to approach this with um, reverence, with uh, expectation that you want to you wanna change us for good. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So it starts out in uh, verse 4. Are we good? Yeah. So, and so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Goes right into it. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Kind of a bold, bold claim there. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Totally random little fact that Mark decided to throw in there, right? We would think. We're going to unpack it. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I. The sandals, uh, the, the laces of sandals, who I am worthy, not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on. At the time, Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven torn open and the spirit descended on him like a dove. And the voice came over him from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. That's the voice of God. Let's unpack this, why this is important. The life of John can teach us a lot. We have a lot to learn from, from John. Um, 
John the Baptist here is demonstrating what it looks like to live this kind of life in relationship to God. He's serving the Lord. He's there baptizing. He's preaching. And the response that people have is interesting because in verse 4, it starts out, he says, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Confessing their sins, that's what people were doing. They were confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This, to me, intrigues me because people were willingly going out and confessing their sins. If I right now were like, hey, let's all just confess our sins, you'd be like, yeah, we're not going back to that church, right? Like, this would not be an environment where you just be like, which in some ways it should be an honest place where we can just share those things and be vulnerable, but we don't want to do that, right? Like, we live in a culture that just does not emphasize, like, let's talk about sins, right? Like, we avoid it at all cost. Culturally, this sounds super foreign to us. Like this concept of people going out going, yeah, I need life transformation. This guy's talking about it. I want more of it. Here's where my life's been. It's been in shambles. I want, I want in on this. Baptize me. Like I'm in, right? This is so foreign to us. And it's foreign to us because we, 2,000 years later, we live in a culture that's like more individualized, we don't have the expectation of something that's going to come in and solve our problems. It's on us. It's on me. It's a new year, new me. Like, I solve it. I figure it out. It's on me to make sure that this whole thing, the ship sails, right? And that leads to a misunderstanding of what we see here that people are confessing. We see sin as something that... Um, is that doesn't exist, right? We try and downplay sin. We try and exclude sin. We try to, at all costs, not label the thing that's going wrong. Um, but if we don't acknowledge, this is an interesting thing that, that I'm constantly wrestling with, if we don't acknowledge or diagnose sin in our lives, we will never recognize the problem that exists in us. And I know that sounds intense and it's harsh. I'm starting right off like going straight to the jugular, but we will not find true healing and freedom until we acknowledge that there is sin in our lives. Until I recognize that I have a problem in my life, it will never be uprooted. Until I recognize that there are things in my life that are selfish, that are broken, it'll never change. I can blame everybody else, right? Like, my biggest thing, I'm just being vulnerable in front of you guys. My biggest thing is I can blame others for my problems. I can say it's someone else that caused this to me, you know? I can say that I can blame the culture. I can blame the world around me. I can blame, blame my environment, blame my family, right? But until I acknowledge really what's going on in me, nothing's going to change. Because I can't change other people, right? You can't change the people around you. You can't change the world around you necessarily. You can influence it. But until we acknowledge it, and what happens here is people were just acknowledging it. They're vulnerable. They're open. They're confessing their sins. They're like, you know what? Yeah, there's brokenness. And you seem to have the solution. You seem to have this beautiful, free, life-giving thing that is available to us in this baptism and surrendering to the Lord. And so... Um, 
that's just a distinction I wanted to make right here, right off the bat, as it starts out there, that like we have to recognize that. And so baptism was the significant way of acknowledging it. It was a way in that culture of acknowledging, I no longer want to have control over this. I, I recognize that I need help in this. And so I want to die to my way of life and take on this new way of life. And so that was the representation of going under the water, that you're dying to your old self, dying to your self-control way of doing it. Like the way that I'm doing it is just, it's messing it up. And you're coming up in this new way of life, this new way of being. That's the, the, the visual that we see, the metaphor that we see in that relationship in what John the Baptist was inviting people into. John's life um, exemplified this in, in what he was doing there in the baptism. And we see this further on, like spelled out really simply in Colossians. Paul talks about it. And he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, raised up out of the water. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden in Christ, uh, hidden with Christ in God. That there has to be this moment of where we die to ourselves and begin to see that there's a new life, there's this new way of being in Christ that then transforms everything because we're no longer focused on what he says, earthly things. There's earthly things that will distract us continually. Um, my own agendas constantly get in the way, right? Um, so I want to give you guys a visual that really helped me see this. Um, I think I saw it last week um, that helps us see our lives in this perspective of understanding that there are s- there are certain things, choices that we make that, um, that I think take up our time in a way that, um, that I think help us see like really what's significant. And I think what I want to do is like take a moment to see really like where our time is invested and what begins to happen. So I saw, I got this, um, from like, a. I forgot who the guy was, what the guy's name was, but I'll pull it up later and I'll give it to you. Um, but he broke down exactly a 90-year life. So, like, if you end up living 90 years, roughly, um, which some people do, um, this is life broken down into the time that you will spend doing certain things in life, okay? So, we will sleep 288 months. So, this is broken down. Each bubble is a month, okay? And so... Um, if you can't see this very well, I put it on, did I throw it on the digital notes? Okay, if it's in there, you can see it better in there. Um, but that, um, that amount of sleep is crazy. The thing about like how much of our life is dedicated just to sleep, this visual illustration of it. Um, 126 months of our life is going to be dedicated to work and school. I love that driving has its own <laughs> layer of months. 18 months of driving. It's a lot of time in your car, right? Um, Cooking and eating is one of my favorite right here. So 36 months, you'll spend cooking and eating. Uh, Chores and errands, 36 months. Bathroom and hygiene. This one blew me away. Like, I didn't think that that would be that much time. 27 months of our life is going to be spent in the bathroom. (laughs) That's a crazy thing. But then here's what I want to hone in on is we have a total of 334, on average, 
months of screen time. If, if you add up the amount of screen time currently, like where we're at culturally, obviously this was different 20 years ago, right? But currently, the way that people consume, on average, screen time, 300, well, that's the free time, will be 312 months. 312 months of our lives can be looking at a screen like for free time, not, not just work. Like if you look at a screen for work, that's different. That's, that's work and school part. That's how much time we're going to be influenced, impacted by our screens, whether it's our phone, whether it's TV. Um, and seeing that helped me begin to, I think, categorize what do I value, right? What do I truly value as the thing that's going to influence my life on a continual basis? Do you think that when you get to 90, you're going to look back and go, I'm so glad I spent that amount of time looking at a screen? Do you think a 90-year-old that, obviously, nine-year-olds now didn't have that opportunity, but do you think a 90-year-old would sit there and go, yeah, man, I'm so glad that 312 months of my life was looking at Instagram, Facebook, whatever, watching TV. I don't think so. I think that as we begin to look at this and we begin to see how many months of our life is consumed with this thing that influences us so much. It influences what we purchase on a continual basis. Um, it influences how we think, right? How we take in content from around the world, how we take in um, opinions about things, everything. It all comes from a screen. This has pros and cons, right? There's good that comes with that, and there's also going to be a lot of bad that's going to come with it as well. But could that be used in more beneficial ways? Could that be used in ways that transforms your world? There are categories that weren't really thrown in here. But what if our free time, like what if some of these blobs were filled in with serving, loving, helping? Um, what if it was filled in with a hobby that somehow translated into um, deepening relationships with our children or um, with friends, with coworkers, with people we know? Like, what are the ways that we could use that? It's like, that's such a huge chunk of our life that could be used in really, really beautiful ways. And as I look at John's life, I see a prioritizing of the kingdom, prioritizing God over everything. Um, it says that John wore clothing of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. His humility, just in even how he dressed, clearly didn't care about that stuff. Clearly was kind of the, I don't know, like being punk rock in a way in that culture. It stood out. It stood out enough to where Mark wrote it down, right? Nobody else was wearing camel's hair and eating locusts, you know? Like, there was something about the way that he lived his life that was different that didn't have all the blobs filled in the same as everyone else did, clearly didn't have as much screen time as everyone else did, or the things that influenced him in a different way, 
that his life was just, it was different. And then it, it continues on, and he says, after me comes the one more powerful than I. So he recognized that there was power in his life, but it didn't come from him. And he goes on and he says, in the straps of whose sandals, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. There was a humility about him, a prioritizing the right thing in his life that just took over. He didn't care about the opinion of others. Scholars believe that his life emulated Elijah, which in that culture at that time, um, Elijah was a prophet that spoke out against injustices that happened uh, in, their, in their way of worship. Um, it, Elijah was, again, that prophet that called out the culture that was not worshiping God, that was worshiping other gods. So worshiping the wrong things, prioritizing the wrong things. And so for him to emulate Elijah and to also be confused with Elijah, because later on um, there's moments where uh, I think it was Herod actually has him beheaded, John the Baptist beheaded, because of the influence that he had. Clearly a lot of the countryside, it said, came out to be baptized. He had this kind of influence that was far-reaching, and so much so that Herod had him beheaded. Like, that's pretty intense. And this is from Josephus, who is an outside scholar, outside of Scripture, talking about it, talking about who John the Baptist was and what Herod was doing in that relationship and Herod's fear that this guy could come on the scene and transform things, that, like, it would uproot and people would begin to worship this other king, Jesus, rather than Herod. And Herod wanted to have that control. As soon as a, a king loses their control, um, Things go downhill from that point, right? So um, it's interesting to see just this is a person who had major influence, yet massive humility. Massive humility. It was like, there's one coming that's, more, that's greater than I, the one that we will worship, the one that is the most important. And I just see a humility that, that I want in John the Baptist, um, humility, there's something about that that is so missing in our world and in our culture that I think that our, like what Jesus brings is that, that's an ingredient that Jesus brings that I think would truly transform life. Like when we talk about things that will change us in 2024, new year, new us, humility I think is one of those things those key ingredients. And I want to show you a couple of passages because Scripture talks about this continually over and over and over. And so I cherry-picked a few. If you want to go and Google it, you can find way more. So I just grabbed a few just to kind of show like Old Testament, New Testament. Proverbs talks about it continually, right? Um, Proverbs 11, 2, it says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom that kind of wisdom of recognizing that I don't have all the answers is a really good posture to approach conversations, to approach handling problems that exist in our world. That humility, that's true wisdom, right? We've all encountered those people, right, that are so humble and they're willing to ask questions and really help you along in that journey um, rather than just pointing a finger. So Proverbs twelve fifteen says, the way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. 
humility again. Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. A passage that many of you are probably familiar with. A humility that recognizes there's one greater than I. There's someone greater than I. This God that comes in and begins to transform things. Luke 14, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Jesus says this over and over to his disciples and teaching them that the way of leadership, the way of influence is the way of humility, the way of serving, um, taking on a servant attitude. When John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals. Like that was the job of a servant in that culture. And so for him to say, I'm not even at that point where I'm like, I'm not even, I can't even do that. That's how humble he approaches this relationship with the father and with Jesus. Um, And then Philippians two, which if you want to read the whole passage there, it really talks about Jesus and his humility, taking on flesh and blood coming from a place of authority and power um, in heaven to say, I want to come down and be with you. Like that's what we celebrate all throughout Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us. So he wants to take on flesh and blood and, and really demonstrate that. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourself. Do not look to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And so again, the posture of, of true humility is is wisdom. And when we look at our lives and we begin to look at all the black dots that were on that, all the months that exist in how we invest our free time, there's so many beautiful ways that we can invest that free time that I think will bring life, that we can approach with a humility, that we can still, I'm not saying don't do fun things, but I'm saying like the things that we do do, we can do them with intentionality and humility that then we can recognize how God might be working in those things. So to help guide this teaching, uh, we have a couple minutes. I want to show you this meditation that I think captures really what, what I see in John and what I see as an invitation to how we might live. And so I want you to think about, it's going to talk about homes and seeing our lives as a home, okay? Um, it's five minutes long, just so you know, and it is a meditation, so it does have a pace to it that I just want to prepare you for, um, but the way that he articulates what it looks like to live the same way that John lived um, is beautiful, so check this out. If you were a house, what kind of house would you be? A strong one, a broken one, a warm, welcoming one. Or would we be a very guarded house where nobody can get too close and no one has any idea what's going on inside? Would we be one of those super extravagant houses on the outside that's a little cold and empty on the inside? Or would we be an invisible house all alone right in the middle of all the other houses. Whatever it may be, I think for most of us, we're okay with the very basic upkeep. Something breaks, we fix it. 
paint job here and there and maybe a new rug in the bathroom. And our house is good. Enough. Then there are those who are always working on home improvement. New kitchens, new floors, new additions. As far as their resources will take them, always trying to make their homes better. And this is good. But God isn't interested in home improvement, fixing some leak or a new paint job. He wants to tear the whole thing down and build a giant palace in its place. And not some cookie-cutter McMansion type of thing, but something new, unlike anything else, that's still 100%. Now, this type of building is supernatural and requires supernatural construction and materials. We call these, and these resources are free and unlimited. we're not going to like it at first as all those old walls we put up have to come down and all that mold is exposed in places we didn't even know existed and we'll fight it and say I'm not changing this and don't touch that and he'll say but that has to go in order to make this more beautiful And we'll think we know better and try to do the plumbing our way. And then a year later, the whole thing will explode and they'll smile and say, this time, let's do it together. But eventually, through this relationship, we begin to trust. And eventually, we learn to let go until eventually we leave the keys to the whole thing in his hands. We call this. And the work is never done, not even in a million lifetimes. It just keeps evolving slowly and imperceptibly, becoming more and more. And the whole thing is built on a foundation that will never break. Placed on top of a mountain to be a giant light. God isn't interested in just some nice house. He wants it to be perfect because he's moving in. The God of the universe wants his spirit to live in you, and you in him for all eternity. That is an intimate relationship. So he's waiting, even at this very instant, bags packed in his giant excavator, ready to break ground. But he's not going to touch a single thing without our consent.
imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. I love that meditation because... I think so many times we try and do it on our own strength. We think that we need some kind of game plan to just renovate our life, make our house better. But what Jesus is doing is just asking for us to have that humility to say, come on in, like, let's transform this thing together. Um, John the Baptist knew that. He said, whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. He had a posture that said, God's the one in charge. Jesus is the one that transforms life. And until we recognize that the biggest influence in our life, the most important thing that we need to consume is Jesus, I I think that effort to try and be humble, to try and experience what it said was freedom, um, will be futile. It'll be difficult. It'll be very, very, very challenging until we have that humility to say, it's, it's all in his hands. I'm going to trust him with this. I want to journey with the Lord in this. And so I want to read in closing from a writer uh, named Grace Pouch. Um, interesting name. It's really cool. Um, but here's how she sums this up. Because we all have that choice of, like, are we going to live in our own kingdom? Like the prayer says, Lord's Prayer says, thy kingdom come, not mine, not my kingdom come. It's Jesus' kingdom. Thy will be done, not my will be done. And it says, each of us must grapple with the government Jesus ushered in. Jesus ushered in a government, a way of living. Don't think of it as government, as like nations, but a way of living, a kingdom, right? Because most of us want God to set things right in the world around us so that we can flourish. But there can't be any setting things right unless we let him set us right. Let him root out false sources of comfort, self-esteem, and deliverance. Give, a, give him authority to rule over our decisions, to revise our likes and dislikes, to form within us a loving disposition towards all people. Give him free reign to remake us completely so that we can have what Richard Foster calls a new order of life, that we have a new way of living. The old is gone, the new has come. That's that vision of baptism, right? The journey from kingdom to self-rule to the kingdom of God might sound too far and too difficult, but if we're willing to receive him, Jesus will meet us and lead us all the way through it. And I love that. It's just so refreshing to hear that and know that I don't have to work at trying to experience contentment on my own effort. It comes from actually letting go and just saying, you know what? We're loved as we are. That's the final line that we see in Jesus and what Jesus continues to echo into our lives is the father says, this is my son who I am well pleased. This is my daughter who I am well pleased. 
I love them. Like, and that's the message that Jesus carries on, that these are my children who I love and I'm well pleased with. And so I want to end with this question is like, what ingredients will you emphasize while building your house, so to speak? What ingredients are you going to incorporate in there? Um, you can think of all kinds of things. The fruit of the Spirit is a good list. In Galatians 5.22, it says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, selfish, uh, selflessness, faithfulness, self-control. All those things, those are things that you can begin to incorporate, ingredients that we incorporate in our life that begin to transform it from the inside out and allowing God to do that thing. Um, for me personally, I, wanna, I want a softer heart. Like, I want to experience what it means to be more empathetic to people around me. I want a softer heart that I know that God can only soften. The more I try to do it, it doesn't work. But the more that we surrender to it, I know that God's love will begin to do that. Um, I want to read this, this prayer as we close. Uh, before I, there was a passage or a, a quote from last week that I shared from Henry Nowen that says, we must learn to live each day, each hour, each minute as a new beginning. And as we begin to like moment by moment recognize that God wants to just step into every moment of our lives, it'll transform us from the inside out. So let me read this prayer. Loving Father, please help me to be still. I open my ears to hear you, and I quietly prepare my heart for all that you have in store for me as I approach this new year. May our hearts, Lord, choose you as ruler, because truly, at the end of it all, you are the one in charge, and you have all the power, all the glory, and we really don't want any of it any other way. I want him in control. I want him leading and building this house, right? Um, that's my prayer. That's my, my hope for us as we go into this year, um, that our homes would continually be renovated by Jesus, not by ourselves, that we allow him to be the one that comes in and fills our home completely. Um, that's where we find freedom. That's where we find contentment, true joy, and that allows us to operate and serve and love people out of his strength, not at all. So.